Thank you again, choir. Even more beautiful the second time. Mark, I think Mary, she's trying to get your attention. You need the community prayers. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that this stranger can keep Mark on his toes. I'm Gary Grunman, and it's, it's good to be uh, coming, and I bring you greetings from Woodland, the county seat of Yolo County. <laughs> And I was, I was thankful that I didn't need a visa or a passport this morning to come to the Republic of Davis. My son lives in Davis, so I've learned a few of the... He's had to deal with the planning department. So... <laughs> He's the manager of B&L Bike Shop, so that's where you all need to buy your bikes, of course. He's... he's um, my little son, so he's about this much shorter than me, but I call him my little son because my other son is bigger than him. Will you pray with me? Oh God, may our words and our thoughts and our actions be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning while Kelly is in Woodland. Um, I am a retired United Methodist pastor. Uh, I grew up in Sacramento, uh, graduated from a college. You may have heard of it, uh, UC Davis, <laughs> down the street. And, uh, you know, the, having two services, you know, the choir's already heard some of my lines, but uh, I, I credit uh, Dr. Bottini who was teaching Organic Chemistry 128A for leading me into the ministry. Because I quickly learned that that's the course that I think Davis uses to weed out a lot of people who think they're going to be going on to professional schools. Um, well, after hitting that door many times, I finally realized God was trying to tell me something different. And uh, I ended up going to seminary at Drew Theological School, which is in Madison, New Jersey. And then came back to California, joined this annual conference, my home annual conference. Uh, I served as an associate at Modesto first, uh, then was in Patterson, then uh, 16 years in the state of Nevada, in Sparks, and in Elko and Carlin. Uh, returned to California to serve at Sacramento Japanese and then served in Pleasanton before retiring three years ago. Kelly is in Woodland at the Walk to Emmaus. Uh, my wife, Debbie, is also there uh, serving as one of the clergy teams. She is a um, ordained deacon in our annual conference, retired, and uh, as is Janet Muller. Um, and it's nice to have Jack and Janet, and I are usually pew mates at the Woodland United Methodist Church, but uh, I know they have some connections here in this congregation. When I took my, uh, uh, was a pilgrim on Walk to Emmaus, uh, it was the first one in northern Nevada, it was in Gardnerville, and my table leader was none other than Jerry Olson. So we go back a, a little bit. 
Well, some of you maybe are familiar with the walk to Emmaus, some of you maybe not. It is not a walk. There are still folks who think they need to have hiking shoes or good walking shoes. Uh, It is not that. But it is a time of spiritual retreat, refreshment, renewal, uh, inspiration. One aspect that I appreciate greatly about the walk to Emmaus is it really gives us time to focus on and to celebrate God's grace and God's great love for each and every one of us. The walk to Emmaus is a United Methodist expression of a movement that began in the Roman Catholic Church in Spain uh, called Crucio, now they call it Tres Dios or Three Days. Uh, but the upper room is the organizer, licensee, or whatever of the walk to Emmaus. And it has a United Methodist expression. And one of those uh, aspects is what I appreciate greatly, and that is an emphasis on grace, and in particular, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley's unique contribution to Christian theology, and that's an understanding about grace that is prevenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Justifying grace is that grace which is active, a part of our lives, maybe even before we're aware of God or even have any kind of connection with God. It's kind of like that rear view grace. And, you know, so much we can see God at work in our lives as we look in the rear view, as we're struggling in Chem 128A. Justifying grace is that grace which connects us with God, some would say puts us right with God. You think, you know, most of us use justifying when we're doing, uh, you know, setting up a page, you know. Now that we have with computers, it's so easy. With Word, you know, you just hit the right justify, you know, the left justify, and it makes those perfect margins. Sanctifying grace is that grace of God active in our lives, each and every day as we continue to walk and grow in our relationship with God. Prevenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. Great topics for sermons. You, you, know, you can challenge Kelly you know, say, hey, why don't you do a sermon on those? It really is a lot of fun. I've, I've enjoyed doing that and I found it to be rewarding and, and she might enjoy the challenge or I'll hear about it one, one way or the other. I was glad that I could help support Kelly in her walk to Emmaus uh, by being here so that she could be free to be a part of that time. And I hope it is a, a refreshing and renewing time for her. I told her to enjoy not having to hassle with the clock and letting somebody else be in charge of everything. In Woodland today, in our worship there... There are going to be about six or seven people who are going to be sharing the Lord's Prayer in the language they first learned it. That's a little bit of an expression of what happened on that first Pentecost. 
when there were people speaking in all sorts of languages. We hear that in Acts chapter 2. And it is a wild scene with tongues of fire. And so we have the red banners and the orange and the yellow and the red to give us the impression of the flames of the Holy Spirit. And this was the day of Pentecost. And we celebrate this day as a day of the birth of the church, as a giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. And it is quite a dramatic and exciting thing in the book of Acts. Now we have a very different expression of the coming of the Holy Spirit at the end of John's Gospel, which in my Bible is just one page back. Acts is an expression from Luke. It's believed that Luke wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. They're kind of a a set group. But John, another gospel writer, gives us another impression. And this is the risen Jesus meeting with his disciples in that locked up upper room after Jesus was crucified and then rose. And he meets with them and he says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Very quiet, very calm, actually very private. Receive the Holy Spirit. Very much in contrast to the day of Pentecost. A little earlier in, in John, Jesus talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will give you another advocate or helper or sustainer. In the Greek, it's paraclete. And then after he has risen, he meets with the disciples and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. We rejoice this day in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I know as Kelly and the others in Woodland are sharing in the walk to Mass, they're celebrating the Holy Spirit's presence with them and working through them. The sustaining grace of God still at work. So in Woodland today, there's people praying in different languages, celebrating the expression of the Holy Spirit in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different languages and in all kinds of places. A year ago on Pentecost Sunday, I was in a place where everybody spoke the Lord's Prayer in another language except me. I was serving as an interim pastor at the Tongan United Methodist Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. At the time, it was the largest Tongan United Methodist Church in the United States. But they had had some difficulties. In 2012, I was in Pennsylvania. My wife and I were helping our son uh, fix up his home, preparing it for sale. And I got a call from the coordinator for interim ministry in the Western jurisdiction and said, Gary, I'd like you to consider something. There's a church, and he, you know, he, was, he was kind of cloaking it in, 
in certain language and, you know, not giving out all the details, but I very quickly figured it out. It was a Tongan congregation in Salt Lake City that had experienced child sexual abuse. And the pastor had been removed. The pastor was not the perpetrator. But the pastor did not report the abuse when he learned of it to the police or to the bishop. Uh, One is a legal requirement and one is a moral obligation we have as members of an annual conference that you inform your superiors of such activity, especially as it can involve liability insurance. We know how that goes. So he was suspended. So I had done training for interim ministry, thinking I retired at a younger age and thought, I may want to do that. I said no to some others. I didn't want to live in Salt Lake City. When I left Nevada, I thought, man, no more shoveling snow. I was done with that. Boy, did we have snow in Salt Lake City that winter. But when I had served in Sparks, there was a Tongan congregation that worshipped in our facility. They had a lay pastor, but not an ordained pastor. So I worshipped with them once a month, shared communion with them, baptized their children, did weddings, and helped them with some administrative help that they needed, such as putting, when they had their missionary offering of fifty or $60,000, not just taking it home and putting it under the bed, but we happened to have a church safe. I said, put it in here for safekeeping until you can get to the bank. little lackadaisical about some things like that. Also, unfortunately, there had been child sexual abuse in that congregation. I'd also served at Sacramento Japanese, had done a cross-racial appointment, and I thought, I've had this weird set of experiences serving Tongans, cross-racial, and whatnot. I, I thought, God is calling me to this interim ministry. This is the Holy Spirit at work, calling, nudging, pushing me. And so I said, yes. I didn't want to move to Salt Lake, but I did for seven months. My wife and I said, well, we'll try this. We've never lived apart like that, but we'll see how it goes. Well, it was a very rewarding time, a very challenging time, and I must say probably no appointment in my ministry ever called on all of my experiences and anything and everything I knew to try to, to make that uh, pastorate function. Basically, when I, by the time I got there, which was uh, early December, and then I served for seven months till the end of, of June of last year, the congregation had basically split the, uh, the other pastor had been released from suspension but was put on a leave of absence. Um, it's a long story, but basically it became an issue of Episcopal authority, the authority of the bishop. 
And the people who left did not want that pastor to be removed, did not appreciate the authority of the bishop, and did not respect the authority of the bishop. That congregation still to this day is split. Um, on my first Sunday there, it was very conflictive. Uh, people flashing lights on and off, people yelling. A person came up into the chancel as we began worship and confronted me and said, Gary, I thought we had worked this all out because I had talked to him and was cordial with him. He thought I agreed with him. Their, their normal response would be to get very uh, aggressive and to, to sometimes come to fisticuffs. That had already happened in that congregation. I just told him, I am the appointed pastor, appointed by Bishop Stanovsky, and I'm here to lead worship. Well, he didn't know quite what to do with that. Uh, he went down, grabbed a microphone, the person controlling the mics cut him off. Finally, they left, uh, and we did complete that first worship service. Um, interestingly, and it kind of cemented my pastor relationship with that congregation pretty quickly in that, <laughs> that little crucible of fire. By Tuesday morning at 8.30, we were in court. The court process still drags on. It drags on forever and ever. Uh, basically, it was worked out a couple months later that uh, one congregation, uh, the the other, the, we called them the other side, or the, the Free Wesleyans. They worshiped, they had the building used from Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday after 12.30 p.m., and the United Methodists had it Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday until 12.30 on Sunday. And that still continues, that crazy arrangement. <coughs> One of the things that we found out as we took a Sunday offering those first couple of weeks in December was it was put in the bank and about a day later it was gone because the treasurer whose name was on the bank account from the earlier church was now on the Free Wesleyan side and they were taking the money. So I said, well, we're going to quit taking offering. And... We did. We quit taking offering of money. But I said, we're not going to stop having an offering in our worship. And so we had an opportunity to talk about what does it mean when we have an offering? We offer our money, sure, but we offer much more than that. We're offering ourselves to God. We're offering ourselves in response to God and to God's grace and God's love. Now that church is a big, big building. Uh, I would guess you could seat 600, maybe more, in the building. And it's a big rectangle. And uh, the depth, I mean this way, is the short side, so it's, it's wider than it is deeper. And they had this huge communion rail. And, I, you know, I would guess 60 or 70 people could kneel at the rail at one time. And so I shared, you know, today as we're doing our offering, 
We're not taking money. But you can offer yourselves. And if you'd like, you can come up to the communion room. I didn't know whether anybody would do it. I went up kind of, you know, to, to lead the way. It was like a stampede. Children. Old people. Young adults. Tears. It was a very moving time. And it became the most powerful part of our worship. It became the high point of the worship. Far better than any sermon by a Palangi. That's me. I'm a Palangi. We started to receive monetary offerings probably, I think it was about in March. Uh, We had to basically start the church over from scratch. And I needed to do a lot of teaching them of how to receive offerings, how to count offerings, how to disperse funds. You know, the whole basic thing that we uh, Americans are used to doing in a process that's automatic for, for this congregation, but it isn't for some others, especially an immigrant community. And when we had, were able to, to elect a treasure and open a bank account, we started to receive an offering because we had a safe place to put it. And I said, but we're not going to stop the way we've been doing offering. So we always, every Sunday, we brought a chair up and put it here and put a plate on it so that if you didn't want to wait for the ushers, you could bring your physical offering and put it there and then still come to the rail. As I was preparing to leave in uh, last June, they said, oh, we don't want to stop the offering. Would you please tell the new pastor that we want to continue to do that? So when I met with him, I told him that story. And I said, they want to continue to do that. And it was such a rich experience. I think it's something that if I was to be appointed to a church again, I would invite the congregation to do that again. To try that. To realize that offering is so much more than just putting in some money, putting our check in, writing our check once a month. I don't know, do you do electronic bank transfer in this congregation where you don't even have to? You haven't, you haven't done that yet. Okay. Uh, it's a great way to go. We, <laughs> we did that in, in Sparks. It was very helpful uh, to have that. We called it our fifth Sunday every month when that bank transfer came out. But when you do that, when you do a check once a month or once a quarter or once a year, you're not a part of that passing the plate. But more than that, you're not part of the offering. How God's at work and calling us to respond. In reflection on our scriptures today in the uh, uh, Upper Room New Guide to Prayer, uh, there's a quote by uh, Stephen Doughty who said that after Jesus told his followers all that they would 
one day do in his name, he gave them a single piece of counsel. And this is from the end of Luke's gospel. They were to continue in Jerusalem until clothed with power from on high. This is it. Hold, stay put, wait on the power, nothing more and absolutely nothing less. In the midst of a people who did talk about spiritual things, they were actually and single-mindedly to wait on the Spirit. Now, sometimes we maybe hear criticism or we're critical ourselves of Christians who aren't following what the Scripture says, aren't doing what the Bible tells us to do. Well, you know, we've done a great job of hold, stay put, Wait on the power and nothing more. For 2,000 years, we've done a lot of wait, stay put, and do nothing more. But that really was for just a short time. We were only to wait until the Spirit came. And the Spirit has come. United Methodist Bishop Reuben Job adds, The early disciples were told to wait upon God until the power came. They waited and the power did come. The book of Acts is a brief record of how the early church carried on its life and ministry with power from beyond itself. The record of individuals and Christian movements that have transformed the world within and around them testifies to the capacity to receive power from beyond to fulfill their calling. This power was given to ordinary people who were called to live in an extraordinary way. Could that be your calling today? How is God calling you today? On this day of Pentecost, when we celebrate the Holy Spirit, when we rejoice in the sustaining grace of God, how is God God calling? Nudging, pushing, inviting you. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we rejoice in the gift of your Holy Spirit. Continue to inspire, to enliven us, and to open our hearts and our lives to your call. This day, this week, this life. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.